Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. And for today's episode, episode 86, we shall be looking at a surprise winner at the 82nd Academy Awards and also a breakthrough first in terms of historic progression in the best director category. And that is the thrilling war drama The Hurt Locker. Written by Mark Boll and directed by none other than Catherine Bigelow. The film stars Jeremy Renner, Anthony Mackie, Brian Garrity, Guy Pearce, David Morse and Raph Fiennes. A film that brought a lot of interest for essentially two reasons. It was the first time a woman won for Best Director, and secondly, the film was tremendously overlooked until the Academy and honoured this modern war flick with an incredible nine Oscar nominations. The same thing happened back in 1994 when an unfamiliar film came up at the Academy Awards, and many was like, what is this long title film? What is this three-hour film? What is this prison movie? What is this Shawshank Redemption? And... You know, immediately after the nominations, this film, much like The Hurt Locker, flourished in DVD sales, and people now recognise this film as an instant classic on par with the likes of other war dramas like Platoon and Apocalypse Now. To put it simply, it's a modern classic. The Hurt Locker, which came out in an explosive year, 2008, is set in the post-invasion Iraq, so there is this unfamiliar territory already with this certain aspect of this event, and that immediately raises eyebrows of what this film is really going to entail. We do not have the dramatised action sequences in this war movie because it wasn't a World War flick. It was not as explosive as the other events. It was predominantly in one area. Nothing much happened in terms of Hollywood trying to depict a certain event or over-glamorising things like they do in Braveheart or Saving Private Ryan. It wasn't like World War II when you had different perspectives you could take depicting Dunkirk, for instance, or Pearl Harbor, the submarines in the Pacific with films like Greyhound, the planes in Roland Emmerich's Midway, the Navajo codes in Nicolas Cage's Windhawkers, the tanks in Brad Pitt's Fury, the politicals or po- the politics and spy games behind the films like uh, The Darkest Hour or uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Imitation Games or Brad Pitt's Allied. You can even look at the victim and brutality of it with films like The Pianist or Schindler's List or you can even see true story encounters like that of American Sniper, which I think was the Iraq War, but then you have Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge or you could even have it from the enemy sides or... Uh, just have it fighting for a cause like they do in Save a Private Ryan, Immortal Battalion, Twelfth Man and Stalingrad. I mean, the list goes on and even to other genres like the drama. I mean, the war genre sort of blends into drama or comedy in other, in other films like The Monuments Men or the satirical, uh, satirical take from the German side by Taika Waititi in his beautiful film Jojo Rabbit or even Tarantino's retake of World War II Inglorious Bastards, which was actually nominated against The Hurt Locker at the 82nd Academy Awards. But you can see there there's a lot of material from World War II and we'll still be a lot to cover with just one key event vietnam was another one where it makes appearances in crime movies because of the drug problem it had during the time and also the timeline it crossed with certain notorious figures like escobar i mean even the watergate scandal the gangsters that were emerging in america so vietnam had a lot of flavor for hollywood to depict films and it was actually the last time a war film won best film and that was um oliver stone's platoon in the 80s and that was yeah that was the last war film that ever won the somewhat bleak truth of the atmosphere surrounding the soldiers in Vietnam. With the Iraq war, though, not many key events, not even many countries are involved. There's less flavour for Hollywood to depict. This was raw, it was grey, dull, it was relentless in the mentality of the American soldiers who thought they might be in a fight like they've seen in the movies, but no... This is another war entirely, and this is exactly what The Hurt Locker kind of focuses on, in a sense. I mean, there's another film that focuses on the Iraq War, um, which is uh, Sam Mendes' Jarhead. And for me, that actually handles the mentality of American soldiers better during a bleak invasion of Iraq. But The Hurt Locker is unlike any other film and raises some really interesting questions like, is this war just? Is it wrong to kill people? 
But what the characters do in this movie is just focus on keeping to themselves and the people around them alive, no matter whose side they're on. It isn't the war movie you're expecting. It's pure survival, and it does touch on this interesting theme of addiction and routine and the backdrop of a war genre that happened most recently. Now, so one thing Clint Eastwood did that no other film director really tried to attempt was the perspective element from the two different sides. I mean, if you strip everything away... It's just men fighting other men because someone told them to because they think they're defending their country. Now, Eastwood did two war films, Flag of Our Fathers and Letos from Iwo Jima, which actually ended up being nominated for Best Film. And most films, most war films, try to show some kind of perspective to the enemy, the Nazis, the Russian, or just the opposing, or the Viet Cong in general. I mean, there's a lot of critics with The Hurt Locker that they, you know, they were quite annoyed because there was no Iraqi characters with any real depth in this movie and found it quite offensive. We, um, and, you know, they were like, why didn't they show a fuller set of perspectives on their actions? Even the scene when they are, you know, staking out with the sniper, it just stays on Anthony Mackie and Jeremy Rayner's character throughout the entire scene. I mean, you see the Iraqi distance, um, at, at, you know, just at a distance. I mean, they're just a presence, even a shadow, if not. I mean, the film is clearly showing how the EOD team handle and experience these situations. And I think it is vitally important that the audience shares in the limitations of their perspective and experience. It stays true to this overall documentary style approach of this film that Catherine Bigelow is trying to do. Now, Bigelow has no room for sugarcoating the specifics of what is politically correct on what or how a shot should be done. She is simply outlining a story and it works to the benefits of this film. Now, remember when she did that chase scene in Point Break with Keanu Reeves, very guerrilla style, very raw, and many were like, what the hell is she doing? But it turned out to be one of the best chase scenes in history, and many try to replicate it even now. I mean, the same is sort of done in The Hurt Lock, or not with the uh, chase scene, but this sort of really bleak guerrilla style documentary filmmaking she's trying to do, and they've attempted for this in The Hurt Lock, and it works to great effect with, you know, the backdrop of the Iraq War. Catherine Bigelow claimed that no scenes that was filmed was left out of the final cutting room floor, which is extremely extraordinary in terms of efficiency now another thing that's really popular about this film is very common knowledge that Catherine Bigelow won best director and was the first woman to do it and it is even more common knowledge that she was nominated against her ex-husband James Cameron who was nominated for the record-breaking Avatar but what many didn't know was that it was James Cameron who convinced her to do the movie I know right I mean that was I mean they still talk and they're still on good terms and she still seeks his advice I mean why wouldn't you? He's the person who's made the most money from making films. So, of course, you're going to ask for his advice. So, she'd originally planned on doing another project entirely and was a bit hesitant about doing this film. And James Cameron had read the script and simply told her to do this movie. And it was the right choice, too, because the film ended up beating his film and uh, eight others at the 82nd Academy Awards. I mean, in fact, the film was nominated in nine categories against Avatar and won six of them. I mean, James Cameron went on record and even said, I wouldn't bet against her, uh, which is very nice of him. So the 82nd Academy Awards was a stellar year. First film to have multiple hosts since 1987. The double act of three times presenter Steve Martin and first time debutant Alec Baldwin, who is in a spot of bother at this current moment. There was also this massive change in the 2010 Oscars when Sid Gannis, the Academy president, announced at a press conference that in a blunt attempt to revitalize interest again, because I think the uh, there was a financial crash the year before, so they were trying to get people to go to cinemas again. Um, you know, surrounding the hype of this award, this year's Oscars would feature 10 best pictures instead of the usual five, giving films more recognition that ordinarily would not. So not only did the Hurt Locker win the most awards that night with six against nine other films, not four, nine, it took home best film and a first time achievement in the best director category where for the first time in history, a female won the award. 
Not only did Catherine win the Oscar, she won the BAFTA and the DGA for Best Director. So when I say it was a stellar year, it was ridiculous. Now check this out. It was the year Tarantino revitalized his career back from his not-so-bad be- uh, death proof and gave us his take on World War II himself with Inglorious Bastards. Same, you know, some would say is on par with Pulp Fiction as his best of his uh, work. You know, this might be his masterpiece. We don't know. Obviously, we had to mention James Cameron's Avatar, which is now officially the highest grossing film in history, grossing over $1.3 billion, uh, maintaining the lead even after the release of Avengers Endgame. So, you know, there's Inglorious Bastards as Avatar. We also had the extremely emotional yet enjoyable Pixar film Up, which was one of the first times a Pixar film was nominated. We had the debut of South African Neil Blomkamp in his film District 9, which was amazing, in running for best film. True stories were in the films, uh, in the limelight, like The Blind Side and Precious, and some heartwarming films like George Clooney's Up in the Air, The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man, and Kerry Mulligan's An, An Education. So you can see it was a ridiculous year for the 82nd Academy Awards. And to add insult to injury on all the other nine nominees the hurt locker only had a small domestic box gross of only 12 million dollars and i don't even know what the percentage of that is from let's say avatar which did 1.3 billion which makes it one of the lowest grossing best pictures winners ever in the history of the oscars even when in just in the old ones for inflation the hurt locker made the least money out of all of them which is absolutely add an insult to injury but hey it's a fantastic film and you gotta love an underdog The film wasn't even in cinemas by the time of the Oscars, which tends to usually boost viewers to see movies when the nominations were announced. And that was one of the reasons why. I mean, the reason it got a lot of attention, and some say the reason it ended up winning Best Film, was campaigning the film. Uh, The DVDs and rentals were going off the charts, and that's sort of the main predominant reason why it did so well. And I think after the films Casablanca, which won in 1942, and Crash in 2004, this is only the third Best Picture to have originally premiered in the year before it qualified for the Academy Award consideration. So the film, like I said, came out in 2008, but it was qualified for the 2009 Oscars, which is interesting. Well, technically 2010, because um, it's in the winter months, so they jump to the next month. It's very confusing, or year. So yeah, The Hurt Locker. Uh, it was mainly filmed in Jordan. The fear, they couldn't film in any US military base. The bomb disposal worn by Jeremy Renner was authentic. It's what he actually had to wear, and he was absolutely sweltering. I mean, can you imagine wearing that in you know the Jordanian deserts and sometimes in Dubai I mean in every scene where you see James which is a character he plays uh wearing that bomb proof Kevlar suit it's actually Jeremy Renner not a stunt double which they could have easily got a stunt double to do it the first day of shooting there was a heat wave and the cinematographer who's the cameraman got heat stroke on day one of filming so he was quite sick so that was already a taste of what was to come and temperatures were around 100 degrees Fahrenheit and the producers had originally planned to use stunt doubles for some of the shots with James in the bomb outfit and they did that basically to reduce the risk of Jeremy Renner getting heat stroke otherwise they would be able to film any of his scenes but Catherine Bigelow stepped in and said, look, none of the doubles could replicate Jeremy Renner's distinctive walk, apparently. So even the, the you know, <coughs> excuse me. But uh, he said, even, she said, even the extremely, like, long takes of him, like, where he's, like, miles off, even, like, the last scene, that's actually him, not stunt double. And they could have easily replicated that as a stunt double. But no, all of those scenes are Jeremy Renner himself. So, yeah, the film pretty much kick-started Jeremy Renner's career. Many may have known him from SWAT with Colin Farrell or 20 or 8 Weeks Later, where he plays a sub-character in that, the villain in SWAT, actually. 
where he actually reunites with uh, Samuel Jackson. But after the first, you know, after the film won Best Film, and also uh, it got Jeremy Renner a Best Actor nomination, his career flourished in spectacular fashion. I mean, he was the new Born, he was Hawkeye in the Avengers, he was Hansel in Hansel and Gretel movie, worked with A-listers in American Hustle, joined the Mission Impossible universe in two films. Uh, he was in some indie films, some great, you know, great films like Wind River, and worked in the beautiful Arrival of Denis Villeneuve, and now sporting his you know mini series on Disney Hawkeye, which is coming out later this month. I mean, his partner in crime in this movie is also part of the Avengers universe, Anthony Mackie, who plays Falcon, or now the new Captain America. In fact, Guy Pearce is also in the Marvel universe. He plays Aldrich Killian in Iron Man Three, so you know you can do that. Actually, saying that, Evangeli Lily is in the is the wife, and she plays Hope in Ant Man. So I guess you can kind of do that with most films now. One or more have been in the MCU universe, haven't they? So, and what is interesting about the casting is that the two biggest names in the movie at the time, in my opinion, and the time of the release, which is Raph Fiennes and Guy Pearce, have less than ten minutes of screen time each before they're both killed. So I like that sort of little Hitchcockian thing they're doing there. So the actors were very adamant not to have any personal security when they were filming because Jordan's apparently a very safe place and it apparently is a very safe place according to the internet. But the producers did not agree and they tried to get security but there was no Jordanian military available so instead they used a private company that was never present to the actors but was always around according to Catherine Bigelow. But yeah, one thing that is talked about is the themes of this movie and how war takes a back seat in terms of what this movie is about. What we're focusing on here is the human aspect of war and being part of something. I mean, Jeremy Renner had this sort of laid back but determined attitude in disposing bombs, almost taking pleasure in it because he's, you know, he's one of the best EODs out there, regardless of the life and death situations. And the problem this movie highlights expertly is the identity crisis when the tour is over. Now, his challenge is finding that same meaning or purpose somewhere else including with his family back home and that is why that end scene where Jeremy Renner is at the grocery store staring at the cereal boxes is extremely powerful on so many levels he's trying to find some meaning any meaning in the choices he will now face in normal everyday life including choosing one of the dozen cereal boxes right in front of him I mean from the acting and directing we're instantly on board with this train of thought and how he can't see you know can't seem to even suggest any meaning to his new life which is represented nicely by picking cereal I mean soon after he finds himself consumed by his need to do what he needs to do best at the, at the end of the movie concludes we see his character you know leave his family once again and return back to Iraq adopting all the perilous you know perilous perilous challenges giving him what he craves most and that is his purpose and that's where the sort of center of the movie is and the way Catherine Bigelow has done this movie is a side letter to all the veterans who faces these similar challenges those who will not come home which strikes very close to home because of the fear of identity and the drastic change in lifestyle and finding purpose again i mean the hurt locker is you know the first dramatic feature film after the iraq war to win an academy award and the first post vietnam war about modern war to win the best picture academy award it's also the first war film to win the best picture academy award since the english patient and the first war movie to win best director since back in 2002 when roman polanski won for the pianist controversially that all being said, though, what Bigelow has successfully achieved with this particular brand of movie making, you know, this movie set in Iraq, more specifically about the Iraq war, is that, you know, that this film is not about Iraq or the war, but centrally based on the psychosis of one character, which is James, played by Jeremy Renner. Does the Hurt Locker need a political, uh, you know, political narrative? Not really. It doesn't. No, it's just a film showing 
a breakdown on one person. Sometimes a male dominated movie directed by a woman is the breakthrough the war genre might need to really go full scope in what war is about. I mean, the film doesn't flood out immediate context. If anything, the film could be described as completely random and doesn't follow suit in terms of filmmaking. I mean, the last scene, for instance, just happens. There isn't any rhythm or build up to that massive, um, that scene where that, the man in the black wears that, uh, bomb vest. It just happens. There's no build up to it. I mean, I think I'm really stretching out here, but I mean, Jane Austen managed to populate her novels with admirals, captains and soldiers and never once mentioned the war against Napoleon that she lived through and they're fighting in. And I don't know, maybe Bigelow was onto something there. It's a coincidence the main character is called William James, brother of the novelist Henry James, the author of the essay The Moral Equivalent of War, which perfectly captures the existence and essence of Jeremy Carrick's character in this movie. I don't know. Is that a coincidence? Who knows? But there is much to the Hurt Locker. I mean, it, you know, the film can be confusing and it's not really trivial at all. And it could even be, you know, some could ask, what is the point of it? I mean, the war is both confusing and in fact, both dangerous as well. So that's just where, this is where the movie sort of stands alone. Is it, it doesn't focus on the politics of war. It doesn't give two looks to the fact that the Iraqis have no real relevance in this besides being shadows and being present. They don't really have any speaking parts. It doesn't matter that this film has no women. It doesn't matter that there's no political agenda. It doesn't matter. There's no much, you know, there's no fighting in it. There's no big beach battle scene at the start. It doesn't matter. There's no political agenda. It doesn't even matter. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's no heroics, uh, going on in this movie. What matters is that Bigelow knew exactly the movie she was going to make. And by doing it her way, she bagged an Oscar for best director and put this raw war movie in the limelight when it won the most prestigious award at the 82nd Academy Awards. It's one of the best films I've seen. And it really does highlight the reality of war instead of the Hollywood dramatization of war that, you know, you see in films like, uh, Saving Private Ryan, um, Wind Talkers, and you know it's not all guns and explosions and the enemy. It's always sometimes actually about the the inner soldier and the psychosis of you know the person fighting the battle. And I think that's why it won the Oscar because it's never been done before. But anyways, that's all I have time for with the Hurt Locker, a revolutionary film for many reasons, and one that should definitely be watched for more, you know, more than once. One for the directing and the other for the great, you know, character breakdown of Jeremy Renner's character, James. But anyway, please subscribe to me on Spotify, iTunes, and Google, and you can find me on Instagram. That's Film Exploration AH, all lowercase, all one word. But right now, that's all I have time for with Film Exploration with Ashari. Ashari.